This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! You got a haircut, it looks great. Yes, exactly. The return of the the return of the hairdressers. I mean, no disrespect to uh, to Justine, but I can tell you've had it done by a professional. Although, funny you should say that. I think I'm meeting with Matt Hancock about my local hospital uh, this this week and uh, about the need for a new hospital in Doncaster. And uh, oh, I was actually on Zoom and... Um, as I began, he said, well, somebody needs a haircut. He said to me, three days after my haircut. He was negging you. I don't think he was. I think he was genuine. Anyway, I told Matt doesn't have that. Matt Hancock doesn't have that much hair. So I said people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. <laughs> I've been conducting some research that I thought you might be interested in. I did a Twitter poll over the last 24 hours. I know this is a subject close to your heart. Polls or Twitter or... The subject matter because it's sandwich related. Oh, God, yeah. That's an original joke. Oh, make your own sandwich, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about the bacon sandwich. You see, this is this is how far we've moved on the association exactly. with sandwiches exactly. on this podcast. Make your own sandwich, yep. So, my wife thinks it's disgusting to have butter on a cheese sandwich. She's wrong about that. Well... I, I did a poll. Uh, so I just asked the question, butter on a cheese sandwich. There were 5,936 votes. That's quite a lot. What do you think the percentages were? And, I mean, literally, I don't know, but I didn't see it. I, so so what's, the, what's the question? Give me the exact question. Butter on a cheese sandwich, yes or no? I would say... I'm just doing some sort of telepathy here. I can also see your face on Zoom, so I know that you're not checking Twitter. I would say 57% say yes. Well, it was much more of a landslide than that. 84.7% said yes, only 153 said I should said have no. thought it through, really. I should have thought it through. Because it's sort of obvious, isn't it, really? You, yeah, it's inter- yeah. That is interesting, you know, because, you know, Michael Lewis, he did this book yes, called The yes. Undoing Project, which is about these behavioural... Mm, scientists i guess you call them or statisticians or economists kahneman and tversky and the point is i think there's you, you, maybe our listeners will be able to answer this one you, you you biased my answer i don't mean deliberately by sort of i think they call it anchoring because so you, so i framed it by saying my wife you put yeah exactly you yes. put in my mind you put in my mind the fact that there was somebody who thought this was ter- a terrible thing to do and I think I think if you'd said to me, if you hadn't mentioned that, it's interesting, isn't it? If you hadn't mentioned Sarah, I probably would have given you a higher number, wouldn't I? Because I kind of was thinking, well, I like butter on a cheese sandwich, but obviously Sarah doesn't. So it's obviously going to be quite a marginal call. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's impossible to do the counterfactual. But it'd be have you asked Annabelle this no, question? No, this is this. I mean, the, the, the results of this poll are hot off the press. Okay, can you ask Annabelle the question, but don't give her the Sarah story? Don't tell her the Sarah thing. Just say, "Oh, I did this Twitter poll," and see whether she gives a higher number than me. Let me just. Uh, well, you're going to ask her in real time. I could call her. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is interesting. She's not going to answer. No, she is she? going to answer. She she can't hear you, but she can hear me. Hello. I can I can hear you. I'm just I'm just with Ed. Yes. Annabelle Port, come on it, down. Says, Annabelle Port, come on down. <laughs> the 
Price is Right. Exactly, yeah. So um, just a quick question. <laughs> the, the first question is, butter on a cheese sandwich, yes or no? Yes. Yes, okay. So if I was to say to you that I asked the general public via Twitter that question, what percentage do you think said yes? 90? That is definitely Ed, true. Ed gets a lower percentage because I'd already framed the question by saying that Sarah thinks it's disgusting. Oh, I see. No, well, Sarah's wrong. Big thank you to Annabelle. Ed says big thank you to you. Big thanks to you. <laughs> Bye. Well, there we go, Ed. Your instinct was right. That was very impressive. I mean, that is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think, is it is it anchoring? We better just we we we, we better. Well, I'll have to look it up. I th- I think we are going to have a lot of listeners uh, who will be screaming at the the podcast, whatever the right phrase is at the moment. So I'm sure people can tell us about it. They can tell us about what that effect is called. But you know what? Can I just tell you how this whole thing started? I mean, I read the book yes. some time ago. I think I, maybe I mentioned this to you that I did. I mention that I beat Sam, my son, my younger son, at chess twi- twice in a row. The first time I beat him was sort of deliberate. And the second time, well, I didn't really mean to win. I didn't mean to not to win, but I kind of checkmated him, but without realising that I thought I'd just checked him. Yeah, Joel's telling us anchoring is a cognitive bias where an individual depends too heavily on an initial piece of information offered to make subsequent judgments during decisions making. Once the value of this anchor is set, all future negotiations, arguments, estimates, etc. are discussed in relation to the anchor. Information that aligns with the anchor tends to be assimilated towards it, while information that is more dissonant or less related tends to be displaced. This bias occurs when interpreting future information using this anchor. The anchoring and adjustment heuristic was first theorised by Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. So, so anyway, I beat Sam in the chess twice, and I was, and he said, "You're better than me at chess." And I was trying to explain to him why I wasn't better, why this didn't prove I was better than him at chess, because he had beaten me many other times. Um, and that, and, and, and he said, yeah, but I've just got worse and you're now, but you're now better than me. And I said, well, no, I really don't think that is true. And I tried to explain about the coin and the, and then I remembered that Kahneman and Tversky talk about this law of small numbers that people tend to misinterpret, um, small, a, a small number of events into a wider thing so there's this in basketball there's a thing called the hot hand which is you know if you get lots of points in two games in a row they think they've got the hot hand whereas actually just maybe a random series of events so i was trying to explain this anyway and then we got into the book and then my older son i thought he'd be interested in the book so there you go yeah i tell you we've brought our a game to this discussion even if i say so ourselves we are the new kahneman and tversky well i don't know it's just it's a cut above our normal intro i would say (laughs) this All right, well, why don't we quit while we're ahead and talk about what we're talking about yeah, on this episode? Yeah, I think we should. This week, we're talking about the incredibly successful Stop Hate for Profit Facebook ad boycott. A few weeks ago, a coalition of civil rights groups in the US came together to call on advertisers to boycott Facebook for the month of July in protest at lack of action on hate speech. Since then, more than a 1,000 advertisers, including big names like Unilever, Starbucks and Adidas, have joined the campaign, making it the biggest advertising protest in Facebook's history. Organisers say that Facebook isn't doing enough to tackle racism, harassment and extremist content on its platform, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. 98% of Facebook's 70 billion annual revenue comes from advertising, potentially making the boycott a powerful tool to put pressure on the company. 
We're going to be talking to Jessica Gonzalez from Free Press, one of the groups leading the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition, about the campaign and what they're calling for. She's calling us from California, or maybe we're calling her. We'll be chatting to her about a meeting they had with Mark Zuckerberg last week. And I don't know whether Nick Clegg might have been at the meeting, but he's certainly um, right in the thick of this. Then we're talking to Melissa Ryan, who's been following extremist content on social media for a number of years about why this has become such a big issue now. And to Imran Ahmed from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate about why ad boycotts work and what all this means for us in the UK. What's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, it's a, it's a milestone moment because my son has had his year six leaving assembly oh wow and, and were you allowed were you allowed to go into the school for that yes i mean it was with social distancing and and so on but uh um and they didn't do the normal performance they would do or, or class production they just they did a video um and it was i know you get moved at sort of you're a man who shows his emotions which is really good um I show them too much, though. I think it's a bit pathetic. No, I don't think it is. I think that's too. I think it's been unnecessarily self-deprecating. But it was really sort of moving because you sort of think about, um, you know, I think about the fact that he'd been there essentially seven years, um, which is you know seventy percent of his life, um, and how he'd grown up, and well, also I sort of felt moved because of. Teachers have just done an amazing job, particularly in this period when it's been incredibly difficult. Anyway, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is this week I got to spend an hour talking about the Beatles, which, as you know, is pretty much my favourite topic of conversation, with Björn Ulvaeus from ABBA. Oh, my God! Yes! Oh, my God! It was amazing! Via Zoom? Yeah, yeah, via Zoom. Um, he uh, He is quarantining on an island he's got an island in the stockholm archipelago he's got an island he's, of course he has his own island oh my god um yeah he, he owns an island he has a summer house there he's been quarantining there he just goes out for uh either a walk in the woods or he goes kayaking every day um and it was great he, he, you know we had this great conversation where he told me about being in this folk band in the 60s called the hootenanny singers and then hearing the beatles on the radio i think i want to hold your hand or she loves you and, and just being blown away by it and thinking oh maybe i should try writing my own songs after hearing that's what they did so he got inspired by the beatles yeah yeah so how much abba did you talk to him about we we got onto the subject of the new ABBA music at the end. Well, they're reforming, uh, are they? Yeah, they've done it already. They've recorded five new songs. When are they coming no, out? This this is it. They should should have been out. I think the end of last year. Um, and he was saying, I think it's because they're going to do this tour with holograms or avatars or something. So they're not going to go on tour, but they're going to send these right. holograms out on tour, and that all needs to be ready to go. And because of technical difficulties and because of the pandemic, yeah. it's delayed things but he promised me the new album music will be out in 2021. That's exciting. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start us off today, we're joined by Jessica Gonzalez, who is the co-CEO of Free Press, one of the campaigns leading the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition. And she joins us from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for joining us, Jessica. Thank you for having me. L- let me start by asking you around your campaign Can you give us an overview of the Stop Hate for Profit campaign and the story of how it came about? Sure. Well, many of our groups have been working uh, sometimes together and sometimes individually 
to track rampant hate and disinformation across Facebook's platforms. And we've been meeting with Facebook officials for many, many years now to lift up the ways that white supremacist organizations are organizing, recruiting, and raising money on Facebook, the ways that they have been normalizing hate and mass atrocities and violence against people of color and religious minorities and LGBTQ folks and and women. And frankly, uh, over the years, we've heard a lot of unkept promises and we were fed up. And so we got together and we organized the Stop Hate for Profit campaign that is calling on advertisers, corporations to take some uh, accountability for the, the hate that is running alongside some of their advertisements on Facebook. And what we found is that many advertisers were appalled and don't want their ad dollars and their and their brands running alongside uh, hateful content that is still quite pervasive on Facebook. And so we, to date, have more than a 1,000 advertisers that have joined us, big brands like Coca-Cola, uh, telecom company Verizon, Unilever, uh, Levi's, and other brands that have said they uh, don't want their advertisements running next to hate. They don't want their money being used to fuel disinformation campaigns that uh, amount to voter suppression or uh, confuse people about uh, basic election <laughs> protocols here in the States and around the world. And if I may ask, it's incredibly impressive what you're doing. How did you first become involved in the campaign and, and when did it really start and get going? Well, I've been working on this for over 10 years now, hate and misinformation and white supremacist groups and how they use media uh, to organize and recruit and normalize for their causes. Because of that work, um, I heard from partners at the ADL and Color of Change. That's that the Anti-Defamation League that, for those of our listeners who, who thank don't Thank you. Know yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's such a name brand here, but I got to remember uh, that not so much elsewhere. But the Anti-Defamation... And that's focused, and that's focused on anti-Semitism, is that right? They're focused the on anti-Semitism, yes. But they, you know, we pulled together groups that um, had different areas of concern. For instance, the Color of Change and NAACP work on behalf of the Black community in the U.S., um, free press works for digital rights and for uh, democracy and free, uh, free expression for everyone in the U.S. And then we have other partners like the National Hispanic Media Coalition, the League of United Latin American Citizens, who work for the Latinx community, and Common Sense Media, who does a lot of advocacy on behalf of children. Jessica, tell us what you're calling for from Facebook, because you've got a list of, of, of demands. Tell us what your key demands are. We have 10 key demands. You can see them at the stophateforprofit.org website. First, we're calling for permanent civil rights infrastructure inside of Facebook, including someone in the C-suite that can be accountable for uh, making sure that Facebook is living up to civil rights ideals. We're calling for regular third-party audits of their civil rights um, behavior. We just saw a, an audit come out of Facebook the day after we met with them, and it did not go well for them. Their own audit that they paid for found that Facebook is failing on civil rights on many, many fronts. Uh, we're calling also for uh, new content moderation systems that prioritize keeping people safe, 
and making sure that disinformation and voter suppression is not happening on the platform. And for advertisers, uh, you know, for an audit of where advertisements are running next to hate and disinformation on the site, uh, and and for advertisers to be reimbursed for when their um, when their brands are running next to that hateful content. So we, there's a number of other demands sure. as well, but that's just sort of highlights. I can't help but ask you just before we get on to what uh, where exactly things go from here. I can't help but ask you about your your meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. Um, t- take us into the Zoom, if I can put it that way. Sure, uh, you can. <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, first of all, I have a very parochial British question, which is, was Nick Clegg there? I don't know whether you've heard of he Nick was. Clegg. Yes, he was of course. There. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Um, he, he has a particular place in people's hearts uh, here. If that's the, if they, if that, that, I put it as neutrally as I as I can. Um, so go on. So you had this meeting with, with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg and Nick Clegg, among others. Tell us about that meeting. What was it? It was last week, I think. Uh, tell us how it went. What was it trying to achieve? Um, it'd be really interesting to hear. Well, as you know, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign has 10 demands. Facebook has had those demands for four weeks now. Many of those demands were made long before this campaign ever started. And so we went to the meeting expecting that we might hear them respond to those demands. Instead, they seemed to be quite satisfied with just presenting Mark and wanting us to feel really happy that we got to talk to a tech CEO None of us are impressed or starstruck with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, At this point, we're really disappointed in all the talk and no action uh, to address the concerns we've raised. So it was really a bit awkward uh, at the outset because they were kind of like, hey, uh, walk us through your demands. And we responded, no, you've had our demands. They're only two pages Certainly you can read. Certainly you've thought about this. Please tell us how you plan to respond and what your timeline for response is. And they had no answers there. Uh, They really just thought they were going to get an A for attendance, an A for effort. um, But there was no substantive commitments made. But we really took them to task for Nick Clegg's claim that Facebook doesn't profit off of hate. Uh, He'd said that just about a week before we had our meeting, and we gave him numerous examples of how Facebook does, in fact, profit off hate, that it's built into their business model, that their algorithms, according to their own research, 64% of people who find extremist groups on Facebook are uh, invited to those groups by Facebook's own algorithms. Uh, That has not changed much since that was revealed Um, and there's still really hateful ads running on Facebook, uh, including ads that call immigrants and brown people an invasive species, an invasion. So we did go pretty hard on Nick Clegg for that. I'm glad to hear it. And just on the Nick Clegg article, one of the things that he says, and it probably is worth asking about this just because our our listeners may wonder about this, he he basically says that they do deal with uh, what they what he calls hate speech but then he says something which i guess you will have heard a lot of times which is that 
Uh, we err on the side of free expression because ultimately the best way to counter hurtful, divisive, offensive speech is more speech. Exposing it to sunlight is better than hiding it in the shadows. Jessica, why don't you just react to that? Because I think it's important to hear the response to that. Well, I think it's right that Facebook does have some rules about uh, moderating hate. They are not doing a good job of enforcing them because hate is still rampant on the site. They will tell you otherwise. But uh, we, you know, when we met with the advertisers the day after the meeting, the day after the meeting in the midst of all this media attention, uh, our partners at ADL had pulled just example after example of anti-Semitism, anti-blackness and xenophobic content running next to like Geico ads or ads from other companies. So to suggest that they've solved this problem is, is ridiculous, frankly. Uh, I'm not even sure they're trying that hard, and it's in their business interest to leave up this kind of divisive content that, you know, ends up in very high engagement. Uh, on the free expression front, we really pushed Mark Zuckerberg in that meeting uh, to rethink and have a more sophisticated analysis around free expression. Free speech has never been free for women. It's never been free for people of color and religious minorities. It always comes at a cost to us. In fact, you know, any time that I've gotten very vocal and gotten any media attention about hate, we get death threats. We have people telling me to go back to Mexico where I was not born, but I'm of Mexican descent. Uh, We have people, you know, organizing campaigns to have me disbarred from the California Bar Association. And so this is a very common experience for women of color uh, around the world and and definitely in the United States. And it's even worse uh, for black women. It's even worse for Muslim women. Our, Our free expression has always come at a cost. And to suggest um, that we're just going to let everything run loose on Facebook, I think is kind of a cop-out. And so <laughs> I invited him to have a deeper analysis on free expression, to examine how that's actually working on his platform. Let's talk about the advertising boycott, which has been a phenomenal success. Do, do you want to tell us who, who you managed to get on board with this, um, the, the story of it, and also you know, why it's important, why something like this hits Facebook hard? You know, we saw when major brands, and especially Unilever, uh, which is a huge advertiser globally, pulled and said that they were going to pause ads for the rest of 2020, on Facebook. Uh, That day alone, we saw Facebook take uh, a $56 billion hit. Their stocks were down 8%. I think Mark Zuckerberg himself lost $7 billion or something to that effect. Uh, And I think it really made people wake up and listen and realize what is happening. We're having an an awakening here as as is happening around the world on, uh, on race and racism and how it's existed in our government and in our institutions. And so as as companies are starting to consider what their role has been in oppression and are trying to do better, uh, it's really critical to have, I think, a diversity of voices coming from a diversity of perspectives uh, calling, on, calling on Facebook. I think it sends a powerful message that it's uh, not just the public interest, civil rights, and racial justice groups. And it's interesting, people talking people talking about this, like 
friends reaching out, uh, my cousins, family members saying, hey, do you know about this? We're talking about this inside my company. And uh, we just never have experienced that widespread of recognition of harm before. Do you get any whiff from Facebook, though, that, you know, that they they think at this particular moment in history, um, brands will be getting some value out of a boycott like this. But really, there's only two shows in town. There's, there's Facebook and Google, and brands have to advertise somewhere. Do, do you get any sense from them that they can just ride this out? Well, Mark Zuckerberg said himself, we saw a press article, someone inside the company leaked that he said, don't worry, they'll be back. And so uh, no doubt uh, they can have they can take a flip attitude about these really grave and serious concerns. And I think that in the long term is not a good strategy. I think it's irresponsible. And I think it puts the company at risk and that shareholders and other investors ought to be very concerned about that as we move into a new age where people care about being anti-racist Um but yeah, I do get the sense that they're not as concerned as they ought to be. But I, I have to say, I've talked to dozens and dozens of people all around the world and, and reporters all around the world in the past couple of weeks. And the microscope is on Facebook. Uh, if the U.S. government isn't going to do anything about it, uh, and, and they may, right? We have a hearing on July 27th looking into antitrust violations um, from Facebook. But if they don't, uh, other governments around the world are certainly watching. Uh, and the fact that he is not even concerned about a mass exodus of over a thousand advertisers has got to raise questions about whether Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg in particular are just too damn powerful. And where does your campaign specifically go next after the end of end of July? You know, we're still, um, we still have a few tricks left up our sleeve uh, that I can't quite share yet, but we certainly intend to keep the pressure up on Facebook. Uh, this campaign obviously made a splash in uh, late June and early July, and we will continue to keep the pressure up through this campaign. But this is not the only group that is has been working to hold Facebook accountable. We have hundreds of organizations and companies that have been working on this for many, many years. So I don't expect Facebook to be left off the hook come end of July. That's for sure. And and just la- last question, is this going to go international? What are you asking companies in the UK and so on to do? We're asking them to join us at stophateforprofit.org. We do want global participation in the campaign. We'd love to have more people Sign up. We, we last week saw the five biggest banks in Canada join us. We, you know, in the past week or so, I've spoken to folks in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Spain, Australia, uh, Germany, Germany a lot. Uh, they're really into this work. And so there does seem to be quite a bit of global interest in this. It's clear that people who use Facebook are concerned and so we do think we need a global response to a global problem. Well, look, Jessica Gonzalez, it's a brilliant campaign. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 
We're going to speak now to Melissa Ryan, who is a digital organizer and a strategist in the US. Uh, Melissa writes Control Alt Right Delete, which is a newsletter about online toxicity and far right extremism. Melissa, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And you and Ed have just had a beautiful bonding moment because it turns out you live just around the corner from where Ed spent, I think, some of your childhood. I'm right in saying, aren't I, Ed? Yeah. Uh, not so much my childhood, actually. More my uh, early 30s. Feels like my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, now, it's, it's my understanding that it was the 2016 election campaign that led you to start working on how social media platforms facilitate extremism and misinformation. And I wondered if you could start just sort of by, by telling us your, your history with regards to that. Sure. Um, well, I'm not sure that I even knew what I was working on when I started. Um, so I have been at that point a digital organizer for campaign, democratic campaigns and nonprofits for about a decade. Um, and my specialty, is, uh, particularly, uh, was, uh, mobilizing online communities. So basically finding who your people are online and mobilizing them at key moments. And you can do that for fundraising, you can do that for activation, and you can work with, uh, if you're good, you can work with online communities to sort of drive mainstream media narratives by sort of shaping the conversation. And what I started noticing in 16 was very strange to me. I have a good sense of how uh, online conversation should go in a presidential election year here. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., presidential elections are, at this point, multi-year prospects. And everything uh, on the right was popping, uh, was over-amplified, uh, and particularly uh, the rhetoric that was around, around Trump, you know, the um, acceptable rhetoric of hate and extremism, it was just moving. Um, and it was, certainly wasn't where it was now, but you could sort of feel a shift. And you could tell that this wasn't just, I'm thinking about 2008 and Obama, and in some ways that's thought of as the first digital presidential election. I was thinking of how much youth is involved in that, so it would be more digital. This was, you could tell this wasn't just, you know, older generations catching up. It 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 smelled fishy to you. It smelled fishy. And, you know, the other thing is like nothing on the left was popping at all, uh, despite the level of talent that I knew was working on the Democratic side. Um, and it something just felt off about it. And I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, and I started taking notes, actually. And hilariously, I think you all will appreciate this. I was like, well, whatever this is, it won't be an issue in the US election, because there's no way Donald Trump is going to win. But it might help me generate some business in Europe, because it's clearly going to be a problem in European elections. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to understand, because again, like online organizing is my background. And this was this was very clearly organized. Um, so after the election, I left my consulting firm um, and started diving in. Now, we heard before from uh, Jessica, and she told us about this, uh, this Stop Hate for Profit campaign. Uh, do, do you think a campaign like this can be a turning point? I hope so. Um, I think it came at just the right moment. You know, I think it's important to realize the civil rights groups and, and community at large have been working on this for years. Um, it took them a couple of years of organizing just to get Facebook to agree to do an audit. And then even then they had to push them to agree to release the results of the audit uh, or actually uh, consider any uh, recommendations on it. Um, you know, I think it's just at, at the right moment in the U.S. where you also have the Floyd protests and I think uh, white Americans are becoming uh, more aware about race than we perhaps have ever been. So it was just sort of the right campaign at the right moment. The key will be 
how do you sustain it? Are you going to be able to sustain a boycott over several months? Uh, or do you need to switch tactics? And what is that? Do you, in your experience, is Facebook, we've been talking generically about social media, really, is Facebook worse than other platforms on dealing with this? They are. Um, they're worse for two reasons. One, just because they're the scale um, of the fo- of people on Facebook and the user base that they have. Um, but also Facebook consistently has done the minimum. Uh, they always treat problems like a PR problem and not a systemic issue within their company that they need to fix. And what happens with Facebook is it takes everything, you know, all this advocacy to get them to create a policy. Then it takes another round of advocacy, usually several rounds, to get them to actually enforce the policies that they've created. Melissa, one one of the issues in the U.S. is not just what happens online, but how it interacts with the sort of um, the kind of uh, Fox News industrial complex type uh, issue. (laughs) Tell us about that, because Fox is clearly very important for Trump voters and indeed you know, for, for, for spreading some of this extremist stuff. Yeah. It's also the easiest way to get to the president. If you have a message that you want him to receive directly, uh, he's sort of known infamously here for live tweeting, uh, shows he watches on Fox news. Um, I think it's, uh, Fox is such a great, uh, not great, uh, important vector for extremist content to get to the president, uh, because Fox News has for some time used more extremist social media communities, um, as an unofficial segment producer. Uh, you know, it's funny, Tucker Carlson, uh, primetime host here, he just had to fire his, uh, head writer last week, uh, because of comments and posts that this man had made in a racist online forum, uh, for years. Uh, and Carlson, and Sean Hannity have also given coverage to conspiracies, conspiracy theories that have no basis in truth, but have been born in forums like 4chan and the Donald. Uh, So Fox News, uh, you know, it keeps Trump's voters very engaged, uh, but it's also a way to continually get a a stream of extremist content and conspiracies right to the president. Where was all this before the internet? I mean, where was all this hate before the internet? Was it just there and not you know and it's it's now easy much easier to spread was it there and then much easier to persuade is it now much easier to persuade other people what what, what's your thinking about that sure i mean hate groups are nothing new uh we know that from the u.s y'all certainly know that from the uk um and our our uh hate groups in the 20th and, and early 21st century what social media has done um is given them a new platform and given them a new means for amplification. So they have a radicalization engine now, thanks to social media. Uh, and there are some incidents where you can, uh, where there is someone who has been a, a domestic terrorist and done an attack, and you can go back and look at their social media history and sort of see where they've been radicalized online. Uh, the pipe bomber here a few weeks before the 2018 election is a, a great example of that. And And where do you then come out on... The, the more general problem beyond Facebook of thinking, what do we, what, 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 what do we do about this? I am a big believer in deplatforming and pushing these folks back to the shadow, back into the shadows, because what you do then is you not only take away their audience, but you take away their funding streams. Um, and so you can't stop someone from being a white supremacist, but you can make it virtually impossible for them to recruit others. Now, there is talk of Facebook um, banning political ads. Um, and it's, it's odd for us in this country because, 
you know, we don't allow political ads on television, but they are allowed on the internet. You obviously have them on TV. Do you think it would help if Facebook banned political ads? How much of the problem that you've been talking about would it be dealing with? So I'm on the record uh, more almost a year ago for saying that Facebook as a platform is not responsible enough to run political ads. Um, if you can't fact check uh, like a TV station would, if you can't control the hate and disinformation on your platform, you have no business running political ads and having that big of a role in the election. Uh, I, I get a lot of pushback from this, by the way, from from former colleagues who you know make money selling Facebook ads. Um, what this rule in the last few weeks would do, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I think, uh, uh, like, they should have done it all along. I certainly know that other countries have had um, uh, election ad bans in place in the last week or the last few days before an election, so that, re- that remains unseen. I'm actually sort of neutral about whether they, not sh- they should do it and how much of an impact they should have, that it would have. Can the consumer advertiser pressure is probably the most likely way of this happening, because America is very is relatively deregulated on these things. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg isn't uh, going to be held accountable uh, the way that other tech CEOs are, uh, because it is basically he has set up Facebook, so it is almost impossible to replace him. So basically hitting the bottom line and really freaking out shareholders is probably the best way to get the changes that we want at Facebook. We shouldn't have somebody on this podcast without giving them a chance to plug their publication, Melissa. So so tell us about your newsletter, Control-Alt-Right-Delete. Sure. So Control-Alt-Right-Delete is a weekly newsletter devoted to combating all things extremism, disinformation, and on, what I call online toxicity. Um, it goes out every Sunday night. It is free to anyone who wants to subscribe. Uh, you can go to controlaltrightdelete.com to subscribe. Uh, and my goal for that is when you get the newsletter Sunday night, you have all the information that you need for the week ahead. Uh, whether you are working on combating disinformation, whether you're an advocate or whether you're just a citizen who wants to be informed about these issues. Sounds like a great idea. Uh, and I'm sure people want to subscribe. Melissa Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Now, to talk about the implications of all this more broadly and indeed for the UK, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Imran Ahmed, who is CEO of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which is a British campaign challenging online hate and misinformation. Imran, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to see you, Ed. The Centre for Countering Digital Hate has been running a similar campaign to stop hate for profit called Stop Funding Fake News. Tell us a bit about what the work you do at CCDH and about this campaign and strategy. Well, yeah, we, do, and we, we run Stop Funding Fake News, which is one of our earliest projects. Um, the centre was set up really to look at the, the common architecture in digital spaces through which hate, uh, identity-based hate and misinformation was being spread. Um, And we identified a a common architecture that comprised things like fake news sites, which purport to be uh, real news sites, but actually provide hyper-polarised, often uh, often untrue um, spin, um, which is designed then to be used by people on Twitter and on Facebook to to, 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 to preach uh, a, uh, either identity-based hate or various different types of misinformation. The fake news sites themselves, we knew that they... And that there is varied as, uh, 
they're on the left, the right, they're in every country, but uh, things like Politicalite, um, Aaron, Aaron Banks' site, Westmonster, which we, we shut down very early on. Um, and then recently, things like Voice of Europe, which were so serious that they'd come to the attention of counterterrorism in the UK and throughout Europe as being a, a major source of domestic terrorism, white supremacy, um, uh, primarily Islamophobic and anti-black. Um, and what we what we realised with these sites were that they had exploited the fact that Google was lax in who it allowed to... Um, to, to receive advertising from their from their advertising clients, and they were they placed these sites within their display network, and the campaign was very simple. All it did was say, "Hey guys, Ford, do you realise that your adverts are appearing next to this disgusting content?" And as soon as they realised, they immediately removed their advertising. And what we realised is that by accruing lots and lots of companies seeing their adverts appearing in those spaces, that we could demonetize hate and misinformation very rapidly and because for you know there is a significant um part of that ecosystem are, are not ideologues who who believe in it fundamentally they're actually economically motivated actors and so they very quickly would lose heart uh and shut down these terrible spaces so the the, the central insight there i guess was that there was no point going to google itself and saying, why are you monetizing these sites? In the same way that the Stop uh, Hate for Profit folks have not gone to Facebook itself and said, why are you doing this? What they, because they realize that Facebook itself is not a consumer company. And Google is not a consumer company. And it's really important to remember that. You've, you've got to look at the money. We don't give them money. We're their products, and their actual customers are the advertisers. And once you realise that central insight, everything flows from there. Stop funding fake news says, there's no point going after Google. They don't care what you think. You are simply a product to them. Your data is packaged and access to you is given to their real customers, the advertisers. To get to them, you have to go to the advertisers. Which advertisers can you go to that are most vulnerable to public pressure? Business to consumer. So if it's not a B2B like Google and the social media companies, find the B2Cs in this ecosystem. So they then say to Facebook or whoever, what, you can't, you can't advertise our... Explain the transmission mechanism. So quite specifically, um, Stop Funding Fake News is about Google Ads. So Google Ads are, Google has two parts to the system. It has the display network, which is all the websites on which they place content. And then it has the Google Ad system, which is where clients, um, so brands come to them and say, I want to buy 500,000 impressions. And... Um, they then take those impressions, they work out, and of course, there's a, a, people are able to specify the demographics and psychographics, the, the behaviours, the, the sort of the, the attitudes of the people that they want to target, and they then place them on, on, on websites. The problem is that they're placing them on any old website. And so whereas it might go on, 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 a, on a, you know, a high-quality uh, website like uh, a, a news site like The Times or The Guardian or whatever, it may just as easily end up on a website that is essentially designed to preach race hate. But you can specify as an advertiser, I don't want it going on this site, this site, this site, or that site. You can blacklist, exactly. Yeah. And so what we've been doing is encouraging companies to make sure that those sites are on their blacklists. 
is there a whack-a-mole component to it though in that if you're an advertiser you can you can blacklist these sites but sites are popping up all the time and maybe your adverts would inadvertently appear on them well that's that's why right in our charter we say that our job is not to end hate is to disrupt it and and that's really important is that we 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 find the biggest sites the, the, the most effective sites, the ones that have the most shares into social spaces, and we target them. So, we, we, you know, we, we understand that it's impossible to end um, people wanting to proselytize hate online. So what we do is make it more difficult. You said earlier you'd had a lot of success. Tell a bit more about the success you've had. Well, I mean, there's, there's two levels. There's lots and lots of brands that have individually said that they want to blacklist um, and increasingly marketing agencies. So we now have agencies that, that for all of their clients automatically apply our blacklist. Um, the second is that we've actually shut down spaces. So, so we targeted big advertisers first with high click-through rates. And of course, because it's the internet, we can find this data from various different open source intelligence sites. So similar web, for example, would give you the click through, would tell you that eBay has a very high click rate uh, on websites. eBay was one of the first brands that we targeted. And what was extraordinary about it is we sent one tweet to eBay, one, and eBay immediately pulled their ads from the target site. It was just a single tweet. The second thing is we've shut down sites. So um, whether it's Aaron Banks' Westmonster, which had to shut down Politicalite, um, most recently Voice of Europe. We, of course, had a, a success a few weeks ago in the United States with Zero Hedge and initially with The Federalist, which are two right-wing anti-BLM sites. And, and our, our campaign there was very simple. We, we, we put out a press release in the States saying Google have just given $10 million to Black Lives Matter, but they make $10 million a year by putting advertising on these 10 anti-Black Lives Matter sites. And, and to our surprise... Google immediately demonetized both sites and pulled all the advertising. Unfortunately, what we'd forgotten was the Federalist is owned by Meghan McCain's husband. And so Ted Cruz immediately wrote to Google. Um, Donald Trump Jr. started tweeting about it. Donald Trump himself started tweeting about it. And Google backed down. Um, but it just it shows you how effective this this campaign can be because Ed, w- one of the things that, that we've realised and that I think the Stop Hate for Profit project has realised is a know the real target the advertisers b forget about making a case about technology. Everyone tries to be too cute about these things and says maybe there's a technological fix to a technological problem. These are not technological problems. These are moral problems. And the questions that should be put are moral questions. Why are you funding hate? Why are you facilitating the proselytization of misinformation that can kill people? These are simple questions, not why is your algorithm letting this through? And, and Imran, let me ask you this. How, and this, I hope this isn't a stupid question, how easy is it to draw the line, i.e. which, is on the wrong, which sites are on the wrong side of the line and which sites are not on the wrong side of the line? Well, to, to, look, there, there are two sets of actors in, in, in for example, stop funding fake news that, that, that draw that, that, that make moral judgments. First of all, there's 
the CCDH. And I, I, I recognize that we have to make judgments. And ours is based on which sites do we see being used most to proselytize genuine, genuine hate and misinformation that is dangerous, that puts lives at risk. And we can see what's being used and what's being weaponized online. The second is by advertisers. And the most important decision is made by advertisers because they see their advert next to a headline and they make the decision. Do we want that to happen? So I actually think that, that those, those, those moral judgments are being made. And I accept they're being made. But there are two sets of actors making them. And we, we, you know, we heavily evidence that we essentially have to make the case that to the companies who then make the decision themselves. So, so with, you know, advertisers keen to not be associated with, with these sites and the, the, you know, a, a change of attitudes or at least an awareness amongst the public, um, about the, the way that, um, social media platforms are not tackling hate speech and misinformation. Do you, perceive any change in these companies are we going to reach a tipping point where they start to address it in a way that isn't just pr well jeff i think i think we've reached a tipping point not necessarily because of the weight of evidence that was always there but sometimes it's sometimes it's because of the situation the environment sometimes the tipping point happens because of a strategic uh, development um, it, an improvement in our capacity to to, to to make these arguments and to and, and to win battles and the real the real sea change has been the realization by organizations like the ADL and color of change uh, and CCDH had come to this realization some time ago that the companies that the social media companies Google are not willing to change that they will obfuscate and they will try and find ways to delay any meaningful uh, action and that the way to get to them is not through public pressure on them they don't care because of course we are simply their products not their customers you go to their customers and then they move and I think that's really how it works, because this is about unity. It's about understanding who the real target is, and that's the advertisers. And then it's also um, about realising that we have to go public on these things. We cannot continue to negotiate in back rooms because the negotiations are not being held in good faith. Well, it's, it's been inspiring hearing about the work you're doing and the successes you've had. Imran Ahmed, thank you so much. My pleasure. So what did you think, Jeff? I am shocked that Nick Clegg would be an apologist for a bunch of ratbags. I know. Doesn't, doesn't seem in character at all for him. I, look, honestly, I wonder whether they were talking about a different Nick Clegg for, 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 <laughs> for a long for a long period. I just wondered. I, I I'm wondering if it's a case of mistaken identity. Um, I mean, it's it's one of these episodes where it's 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 difficult to say anything other than we've heard some great ideas for tackling what is increasingly uh, an, an awful and cancerous problem in democracy and they're hitting social media, specifically Facebook in this instance, where, where it hurts. And um, it's, it's really encouraging that advertisers are on board with this. And the cynical part of me does think, oh, brands are sniffing a moment in history that it's good for them to be associated with. But um, 
let's let's see how how it goes you know let's let's see if that pressure can be kept on facebook because you know the important thing is it's it's the advertisers spending the money as as uh, imran said we we are we the users of the of the product that's been sold it is interesting and i thought there were three excellent guests uh and i'd been very keen to do this episode the i mean i suppose the open question is this which is how deep are facebook's pockets how much is this going to make a difference to what they actually end up doing um and are they so powerful and this is the problem which is which is you know massive massive power can give you a a great deal of sort of impunity um you know the question is you know it, it is a unique platform where if you want to influence people it's very hard not to be there now i'm not i'm not saying you know that this campaign can't succeed but but i suppose you i don't want to end on a gloomy note i mean i think the campaign is absolutely brilliant uh but you you know it, it feels a bit david and goliath doesn't it yeah but we know how that panned out you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's podcast, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com and you can find out how to email us. At, you also will find lots of brilliant content from our episodes and you can also subscribe to our newsletter our excellent newsletter heartily recommended going even deeper into the subject that we cover on the podcast this one comes from anna redmond and it is an absolute corker i would say um interesting use of the word corker uh (laughs) dear ed how are you i have a warning about your black bean soup I once cooked a particularly foul bean and lentil casserole, and since nobody in the house could bring themselves to eat it, I froze it. So far, so so much the same. A few months later, I had come to terms with the fact that I needed to throw it away, so I left it out for the birds. Then in the early hours of the morning, we heard some terrible noises coming from the garden, but being sleep-deprived parents of young children did not investigate. It turned out that a hedgehog had tried to eat the casserole and had been attacked by a fox or badger. It had escaped, <gasps> it, I know, it had escaped the attacker and crawled into the neighbour's garden and came down to investigate the racket. He judged that the hedgehog was got too far gone to save it and had to kill it with a spade. So oh. don't do that. I don't I think the black bean soup is a slightly innocent bystander. I mean well the, the black <laughs> I mean the black bean soup is a sort of It's the smoking gun. Well, I don't know quite how you describe the black bean soup in this, what what its level of guilt is. Mm. I mean, it's sort of it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, wasn't it? <laughs> I think there is a cautionary tale, though, and I hope that you know when you eventually get round to defrosting yours, you won't be doing the same thing. You're completely right. 
This comes from Ellen House, who says, I felt compelled to write in to show solidarity as a fellow lover of kale. Ellen House is in the house. H in the H. I have spent lockdown growing kale for the first time, uh, along with garlic chives, basil, tomato, lettuce and courgettes. I have joined a group called Vertical Veg, giving advice on how to use small spaces to grow veg stroke plants. I wonder why it's called Vertical Veg. Well, because uh, she hasn't got a lot of horizontal space, so she's got to figure out how to ah. grow up. That's that's the idea of the group, I think. Uh, uh, she says, I highly recommend it to any of your green-fingered listeners. Any garden-related episodes would be much appreciated. On a side note, I too was a competition winner as a child. I won a very nice Bartok the Magnificent rucksack and video. My family were hoping for the day trip to Alton Towers. Um she says, also, I'll miss seeing your underbelly this year. And P.S., any kale-related recipes, much appreciated. There's a really good Anna Jones um, one-pot spaghetti and tomato and kale recipe that we have about once a week, which I highly recommend. Could you send that to me? Yeah, of course I will. Yeah, it's really easy. It's 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 incredibly easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't know if our children would eat it because they wouldn't like the green things, but it's good. It sounds like a good plan. Uh, this one comes from Charles Heatley. Uh, bike or trike is the subject. Hi both. I love the podcast. Thanks. As a commuting GP riding across hilly Sheffield, doing home visits on the bike in all weathers. Thank you, Charles, for doing that. I'm a huge fan of my giant e-bike, having cycled at least 2,500 miles to work and back over the past year. Its motor is on the bottom bracket rather than the wheel hub, and it really is heavy, making it incredibly stable and cornering really well. You should try it, Ed. Why not nip across from your constituency one day, and I'll show it to you. I mean, the trouble is, everybody else seems to have sort of balance. I just... Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I think everybody else assumes that staying upright on a bicycle is a sort of easy thing. I keep saying there is such a thing as stabilisers, Ed. I think I prefer the trike idea. I think, honestly, the trike sort of... The trike will happen at some point. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa! We're in the outro. (laughs) We are. Here's something interesting. Yeah. Sarah has been doing live gigs again, but drive-in gigs... So, you know, they set up a, a stage and a giant screen and people go in their cars. And obviously it's stand-up comedy, so it's weird that you can't hear people laughing. So when people laugh, they either uh, flash their lights or beep their horns. Do you think we could do a drive-in show? Maybe we could. We could get people to, um, like, swish their windscreen wipers if they agree with the point that one of our guests has made. Or, 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 or could people come on their bikes or trikes? Yes! That's that's a great idea. A cycling stroke trike in live show. Well, it reminds me, I suppose, of the Flintstones or American. Didn't the fl- I think the Flintstones? Oh, the opening titles of the yeah. Flintstones had a drive-in movie. Yeah, yeah. from the down a bedrock. Very good. I just think those cartoons were just brilliant in our it, it, when we were growing up. I agree. I mean, not historically accurate, but but brilliant. What do you mean, not historically accurate? Don't tell anyone, but that the dinosaurs and people didn't live at the same time and there weren't drive-in cinemas in the Stone Age. I'm so depressed. <laughs> you destroyed my illusion. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was a kind of 
like slightly bizarre, historically inaccurate thing, but I didn't really sort of think it through. I feel like the kaleidoscope has been shaken. <laughs> uh, right, can I thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Jessica Gonzalez, Melissa Ryan and Imran Ahmed. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Joe Kenyon and Zoe Gelber. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the idents. And our artwork was designed by... Hen... Recall. He's been no butts. It's got to be butter. He's never put a better bit of butter on his knife. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>